From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. My motivation to start the Optimism Institute was fed in part by a small number of writers. Two have already appeared on this show, Kevin Kelly and Steven Pinker. And today, they're joined by a third, Matt Ridley. Matt's book, The Rational Optimist, really helps clarify why, as his title suggests, an optimistic view of the world and our future is completely rational. And he provides pages of data, anecdotes, and sound reasoning to back up this claim. And so it was a great honor for me to be able to host him right here on Blue Sky. Matt Ridley is the author of several books, and they've now sold over a million copies, been translated into 31 languages, and won several awards. In addition to The Rational Optimist, his books include The Red Queen, Genome, The Evolution of Everything, How Innovation Works, and Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19, which he co-authored with Alina Chan and was published in 2021. Matt served the House of Lords between 2013 and 2021, serving on the Science and Technology Select Committee and the Artificial Intelligence Select Committee. He was founding chairman of the International Center for Life in Newcastle. He created the Mind and Matter column in the Wall Street Journal in 2010 and was a columnist for The Times from 2013 to 2018. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and of the Academy of Medical Sciences and a foreign honorary member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Matt is an accomplished person with an interesting take on the world. And I hope you enjoy this Blue Sky conversation with him as much as I did. Matt Ridley, welcome to the Blue Sky podcast. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, it's it's a thrill for me. Uh, you're a big part of why I'm doing this work. I've always had sort of an outlook that I had trouble articulating or expressing in such a smart way as you did in The Rational Optimist. And in that book, this is a quote, you said, I'm a rational optimist. Rational because I have arrived at optimism, not through temperament or instinct, but by looking at the evidence. And I'd love to know, how did that happen for you? Was it sort of a light bulb moment or was it built up over time? How did you reach that conclusion? It was pretty gradual. Um, uh, it starts with the pessimism that I was steeped in as a young person. Okay. In the 1970s, when I was you know, a school child and then an uh, undergraduate student, I don't remember anybody saying anything optimistic about the future of the human race at all. Hmm. And so I genuinely thought that I faced a world of scarcity, uh, conflict, poverty, and sh- my lifespan would get shorter. Uh, the, um, the population explosion would re- lead to enormous famines. I, you know, I genuinely didn't think the world would be a better place when I grew up. Right. And that's pretty extraordinary when you think about it, because the evidence was already there that, that people had been getting more and more uh, comfortable and prosperous over previous decades. So sure. why wouldn't that happen to me? So so then in the 80s, I remember th- feeling a little bit 
sort of um, overtaken by events when other people seemed to be having great careers and everything was going well. And, <laughs> and I was thinking, you know, what happened to this sort of gloom and doom we were supposed to be experiencing? Maybe I have to get stuck in and have a good time too. You know? <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, and, and, but it was somewhere around the turn of the century when I started looking up the numbers on things like uh, the population explosion or pollution right. and, and finding that actually things really were getting better. When I then set out to write that book in 2010, well, I started researching it in 2008, I guess. Yes. I thought I was writing a book about progress and how a lot of it's good, most of it's good, but some things are still bad. Sure. And then I found that there were very few bad things. I mean, happiness is a really good example. I, you know, I'd read about the Easterlin paradox that as people got richer, they got uh, more miserable. Uh, and so I started writing that up and I discovered it wasn't true. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was just false. Right. Um, uh, something had gone wrong with his study, and other people's studies showed the exact opposite to be true, that as people got wealthier, they got ha they got happier. So I found that even the things I, where I was going to concede that the world was getting worse, I didn't have to. Right. Um, and so I became, in the writing of the book, I became more and more spectacularly optimistic about pretty well everything. And so you could have reached that conclusion and not written a book. A book is a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. Did you feel like more people need to know this? Did you just have to get it off your chest? Did you think the world would get even better if more people adopted your mind mindset? Why did you write the yes, book? It, it was an evangel evangelical thing, writing the book. I wanted to tell young people in particular, don't listen to people like me who say it's a terrible world and you're finished. It could be a great world in front of you, and, and it's a real crime to be steeping young people in doom and gloom the whole time. So, yeah, I really did want to um, change the minds of lots of people, whether old, young, or, or, or middle-aged, um, uh, about this. Uh, and uh, But I also wanted to explain it. I mean, uh, you know, a big chunk of the book is not about um, current trends and uh, up-to-date stuff. It's about the evolution of humanity going back uh, a million years and, and trying to work out what it is about human beings that enables them to experience this weird thing called prosperity or growth or improved living standards, which doesn't happen to rabbits or rocks, you know. So what is it that, a, that, that, that you say? You know, so it was it was an exploration for my own curiosity about whether the world was getting better and why and how, but at the same time with an element of wanting to spread the news. Yes. And and you spread it very well. I mean, it's a beautifully written book. And I can't tell you, when I when I started working on this optimism work, everyone said, you've got to read The Rational Optimist. And I said, I'm way ahead of you. <laughs> so um, now, one of the things you talk about, one of the reasons you point to for why this has happened is that there's a human tendency and a desire to cooperate, to trade. And you, you describe how that has a multiplier effect. You have the very provocative expression when ideas have sex and basically these things come together and essentially procreate. Could you describe that and how you came up with that, that idea? Yeah. Well, to some extent, I'm just piggybacking on people like Adam Smith, who saw some of this 200 years ago. It became very clear to me that the, the essence of human prosperity is that we work for each other that I do what I'm good at, you do what you're good at, and we swap the results, and then we're both better off than if we were both self-sufficient. 
and that the grand theme of human history is moving away from self-sufficiency and towards interdependence, towards working for other people um, through being a specialized producer so that you can be a generalized consumer. And the process that makes that possible, and the reason we do that and other animals don't, uh, is because we seem to have this obsession with exchange. There's something deeply rooted in us. You see it in young children. You see it in Stone Age hunter-gatherers who've not been contacted before. Um, a, a, a tendency to want to swap, to say, look, I've got more than I need of this. You've got more than you need of that. Let's do a deal. And that seems to run very deep in human nature, and it's probably pretty ancient. And without that, you wouldn't get the uh, the exchange that leads to rising living standards for everybody. Now, you can say it's new tools, new devices, new um, uh, products that make people better off, but they come out of that process right. of swapping ideas and uh, swapping services with each other. Um, and it felt... So, so when I said when ideas have sex, <laughs> I was being really quite specific there. I had noticed... I mean, I'd, I'd known that, that sex is central to natural selection, to evolution. Sure. Evolution can't happen at all efficiently without the sexual process because it, it, it recombines genes in different combinations so that you can get a good, good genetic idea from your mother and another good one from your father and, and you get them both. They don't sure. have to stay in separate lineages. That's the beauty of sex. So sex plays the same role in natural evolution that I think exchange plays in human cultural evolution. Gotcha. Uh, it brings together ideas from different people in different times and different places and puts them together in new combinations. And without that, we wouldn't be able to improve our lot. And it seems, too, that that the history of humankind is to not only trade, but also to trade in a cooperative way. I, I recently read the book Humankind by Rutger Bregman. I don't know if you're familiar with it. But he challenges a lot of these assumptions that we all grew up with, like you described when you went to school, that you know, he talks about Lord of the Flies, which we all we all took the thesis of that book as fact, even, even though it's a work of fiction. And he said a lot of that just isn't true, that if you threw people on a deserted island, they wouldn't necessarily be animalistic and kill each other and become tribal. In fact, the opposite is probably true. So I'm just wondering what it is about us as people that we, we latch on to these more negative views of humanity and not the more positive and why a book like yours is even necessary in the first place. Yeah, yeah. But just to go back to Rucker Bredman's point, uh, I I wrote a book called The Origins of Virtue a long time ago, 1996. And in that the the point of that book was to say, why is it that we when when people do something nasty, we say that's an animal behavior. Hmm. And when some people do something nice, you say that's a civilized behavior. Uh, I was saying a lot of the kind, nice things we do are just as deeply rooted in human nature as a lot of the nasty things. Right. Uh, and it's a mistake to think of one as needing to be taught and the other as uh, being instinctive. Right. Uh, I'm sure we're capable of terrible brutality as well. Uh, you know, there's nobody saying that human beings are, are all perfect. Uh, and you do have to have rules and ways of living that, 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 that improve people's lives. Sure. Um, but there is a tendency in human nature that is instinctive and deep to, to look for the opportunity to help other people, not necessarily for their benefit, but for the benefit of you both. 
Uh, right. You know, most of the good deeds we do in this world are not purely charitable. They are, in some sense, deeply, well, eventually quite self-interested as well. They're enlightened self-interest. If I tip the waiter, then next time I'm in that restaurant, they'll be nice to me. Or even, you know, they won't shout at me after I go out the door. Right, um, right. But it's it's still uh, better than uh, being nasty. You know, the, the, the being nice does bring its rewards. Uh, and and so if nothing else, it makes you feel good. I mean, it, it just, exactly. it, I think it was Record Bregman who said, you know, if you don't think people are instinctively want to help each other, watch someone trip and fall as they're crossing the street and how many people rush over to help them get back up. It's just... We're just wired to do that. Right. There's some lovely quote from, I think it's Thomas Hobbes saying, you know, why did I give that beggar sixpence? Um, partly to help him, but partly to make me feel better. I do love a good British accent. I only wish I could convincingly say sixpence with such panache. But anyway, it's interesting to hear Matt describe being educated in pessimism and that when he dug deeper to find research presenting a more positive outlook on our future, he became, as he describes, evangelical about the subject, leading eventually to his writing of The Rational Optimist. And he's a huge believer in the importance and power of human exchange of goods and services, but also of ideas. In thinking about the forums of today where we exchange ideas, I went to a place that frequent listeners of Blue Sky would likely anticipate, social media. Now, I have to ask you this question because when you wrote the book, it was this book, Rational Optimist, it was before the explosion of social media. And so I'll play devil's advocate on your idea of ideas having sex. Some, some might say that the, the internet and social media allows ideas to, and I don't want to torture the analogy, but whether it's they get incestuous or they get they get nasty or they invite assault. Um, what's your take on how social media has impacted some of these ideas of yours, better, worse, the same? I'd love to know your thought on that. Yeah, it's a really good question and one that I struggle with. And, and I do write about it in, in my later book, How Innovation Works, um, to some extent. And I think the jury's still out on uh, on all this. Um, when social media began, I was pretty optimistic about it. Um, I thought, great, we can all communicate. That's great for people. They're not going to be lonely. Hmm. A lot of the predictions when the internet came along was that it was going to lead people to become extremely lonely. They were going to sit in their room doing video games and right. not talk to anyone. In fact, the internet was quite quickly used for rampant social engagement. You know, yep. um, uh, excessive social engagement. Yeah, right, right. Um, so, so good. That's not you know, That's got rid of that worry that it, that we'd all be uh, lonely and isolated. Um, we can actually keep in touch with friends the other side of the world. That you know, that's all fantastic. Sure. And then I thought, well, we can see each other's point of view. That's great. You know, we we don't have to just stick with what we're told by the uh, broadcast media or something. We can actually understand each other's point of view, and that'd be wonderful. Turned out. That didn't really turn out so well. Right. Um, we went into our echo chambers. We got less and less good at seeing the world as others saw it. Uh, we uh, reinforced our prejudices. We got very polarized. And I think people like Jonathan Haidt are not wrong to mm. identify social media as the main cause of the, the political polarization that we've seen in every country. Right. You know, it's very bad in the US, but it's also pretty bad in the UK and sure. 
every other country, um, that, that, you know, arguments get very nasty, very two-sided, very binary, very quickly on yeah. social media. We, we, we turn into us and them. Right. Now, I see a metaphor here in the invention of printing. Uh, mm. In the 1500s, printing was invented. Uh, it, it suddenly meant that you could, you could express your ideas in a way that lots of people could, could get access to them. And some people like Martin Luther made a big deal out of this and, sure. and uh, actually you know, became hugely published authors and, and used it to persuade people, in this case of the um, sins of the Catholic Church. Sure. Um, and the result was polarization called Protestant versus Catholic, a 30 years war. Yeah, right. <laughs> and a lot of people dead. Yes, yes. Okay. So that's not a very encouraging uh, um, metaphor. And then there's another metaphor too, which is radio. And if you read what people said about radio in the 1920s, you know, people like Marconi are saying, what an incredible invention. This is going to lead to peace on earth. It's going to be impossible for people to disagree. We're all going to see each other's point of view. It's all going to be wonderful. Well, quite the reverse. Mussolini and Hitler and others made huge use of radio to uh, whip up their supporters to uh, create hate, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think something similar is happening here. I'm a bit of a technological determinist about this. These new, tech, new t- communication technologies turn out to be very polarizing when they first start. Right. And we have to find a way of taming them. Now, in both those other cases, we needed a very large war to yes. uh, tame them. <laughs> yes. So that's not a terribly encouraging um, uh, analogy. Uh, but I think, you know, I, I think we're seeing ways in which we are learning to live with this dangerous beast. I mean, I, for example, you know, used to have sleepless nights with upset about things people had said about me on Twitter. Right. And then I decided I'm not going to read the replies to my tweets. Exactly. We're training (laughs) ourselves in some ways. I use it as a news feed and I'm going to occasionally express my own view and send it out into the ether and good luck to it. And I've had plenty of bad nights sleep, but not because of that. (laughs) Right. I don't know whether we're all doing that, but I think we are learning lessons. And I'm glad you use those historical references, radio and print, because one of my concerns, and I talk about this a lot on the show, and I interviewed Kevin Kelly, who I'm a big fan of as well. Kevin's great. Kevin is a real prophet in this area. Well, in his, one of his lines that I use almost every show, it seems, he says, if you, if you only read the news, you'll think things have never been worse. But if you read history, you'll realize things have never been better. And, right. And he says, read more history. And uh, I use that in a high school graduation speech and the three history professors started clapping. But I think it's so true. You know, when when Americans say we have never been more polarized than we are today, you know, the Civil War comes to mind. Or when, yes. when people say, you know, 2016, when Trump was elected, that was the worst year in American history. 1933, 1944 were pretty rough. You know, it just sometimes we just lose that context. And to remind people we've been through similar things before, only worse to me, is very helpful. Yes. And uh, interestingly, because it's now 13 years since The Rational Optimist came out, I've got lots of experience of going around the world talking about rational optimism and uh, feeling just a little bit uncertain as I go into the room that I'm going to win the argument because, you know, there's a crisis in the euro or there's a war in Syria uh, or there's an Ebola outbreak. And someone will always stick up their hand and say, how can you? optimistic when you see what's happening with Ebola in West Africa or the war in Syria or something. And I would say, you know, a rational optimist doesn't think everything's fine. We're not a (laughs) panglossier. 
Right. Uh, but we do think that on the whole, it's better. And sure, for every one of those reasons not to be optimistic since 2010, uh, they've all gone away one by one. You know, new ones have come along in their place. The war in Ukraine, uh, sure. the uh, war in Israel that's sure. just started. Truly horrendous and very depressing and, and very upsetting. Uh, but doesn't detract from the fact that over the last 10 years, the average African has seen his living standards improve way faster than in any other decade. His chances of dying of malaria or HIV plummet. Uh, his chances of watching one of his kids die drop away. Um, you know, these are wonderful things, and they've never made the news or barely made the news because they're gradual Exactly. You know, bad news is sudden. Good news is gradual. That's another yes. little aphorism I came up with. I don't know whether it's true or not. No, it's absolutely true. And and the other thing, too, about these things you describe, malaria and, and other things, Ebola, for that matter. One of the things I always stress when I tell people I'm working on optimism, they, some people think that, that an optimist is just someone who just sits around assuming things are going to get better no matter what. I believe it, it takes action. It takes people getting out. So when I addressed this same high school class, I was thinking back, I know what they're thinking, that it's my generation who left them with this mess of climate change and political this and everything else. And it's like, okay, but when I was graduated from high school, when we were talking about the environment, it was acid rain. It was the ozone layer. We had apartheid. We had a Berlin Wall. We had boom, boom, you know, AIDS, you know, and one by one, those have been addressed. How? Because people with a sense of urgency and optimism got out. They voted. They were scientists. They were business people. And th these things got fixed. So, you know, welcome to the club. We all inherit problems from the generation before, but that next generation gets to work and does something about it. Yeah. And actually, the, the etymology of the word optimist is quite interesting here because it's coined by Voltaire in his novel Candide. Um, and it's he's kind of mocking theodicy at the time, which is the Leibnizian uh, philosophy that uh, all is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. Hmm. Why? Because God made the world and God wouldn't make an imperfect world. Hmm. So when uh, Candide says, well, hang on, how about this earthquake in Lisbon that's just killed 60,000 people? What, what What's good about that? Ah, says Dr. Pangloss, you see, um, that's good too, because they must they were evil people. How do we know they're evil people? Because God's just killed them in an earthquake. <laughs> Therefore, they must be bad guys. Um, uh, and of course, you know, Candy, uh, um, Voltaire is having a wonderful time mocking this ridiculous sure. philosophy of, of Panglossian optimism. But you and I were not Panglossian optimists. In some ways, we're the very opposite. We're saying the world is a veil of tears compared with what it could be, compared with what it's going to be if we allow it to be next. Right. And the people who are Panglossians are, I don't know, Greenpeace and people who say, don't you dare invent anything new. It might be horrible. Right. They're saying the world the world can't be improved. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry, the world can be improved. Right. And so um, so it, it, the one thing that really sticks in my craw is when some reviewer or commenter calls me a, 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 a Panglossian because no. they're completely missing the point. No. I'm, saying, I'm saying we've hardly started yet on yes. the improvements we can make to human living standards. I'm a big fan of historical metaphors, and I think Matt's examples of the early days of printing and radio are helpful to think about how social media might evolve. The advent of both the printing press 
and the use of radio airwaves came on with great promise, but were also used to create great upheaval and at times to spread hateful ideas like Nazi propaganda. Today, I don't think many of us would describe these technologies, the ones behind printing and radio, as being destructive or evil. And perhaps, as Matt says, social media will be one we all simply need to tame in a similar way. Getting back to our conversation, I wanted Matt to comment on the concept of trust, which is emphasized in his work as being very important to human progress and prosperity. One of the things I also wanted to ask you about, though, if this maybe relates to social media or just where we are, in, at least in the American society, I think around the world, this is a quote from your book. You said, as a broad generalization, the more tr people trust each other in a society, the more prosperous that society is. And trust growth seems to precede income growth. I, I reread that in preparation of speaking with you. And I, and I wonder, because everything you hear is that trust is eroding in our society, at least, at least trust in institutions, church, government, elections. Um, and there's some suggestion that, that we think trust is eroding interpersonally, although I interviewed Adam Mastroianni, who said, well, no, that's actually a bug. We, 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 we paint with a broad brush there and say that society is getting less trustworthy. But then when we ask, do you still trust your friends as much as you used to? Everyone says, of course I do. So, so maybe it's not that bad. But I wonder if you have any concerns about where we are as a society in terms of trust. And if that erodes, is that going to impede progress? I don't think I have a very good handle on it at the moment. I was probably, I'm probably not paying as much attention to the literature around that as, as I was some time ago. Uh, and I, uh, uh, on the whole, I would be relatively optimistic about that. Okay. I, I think that there are uh, things we're doing in terms of, uh, you know, paying by tapping with a card and things like that that are, are really emblematic of really quite a lot of trust uh, in our society. I think the interpersonal trust is the important thing. Trusting mm. big public institutions is something I have a problem with, uh, but I think I always have. And that is to say, you know, if, if, you, if you develop a relationship with a corner shop where you buy your lunch and, and you go in there every day and you say, thanks, I'll have my usual lunch and they give you the sandwich and they say it's a nice day and, and great to see you. And one day you reach into your pocket and you haven't got your credit card. You say, oh, my God, I can't pay for it. They will say, don't worry, pay me tomorrow. And that's great. Now, Try doing that with a government agency. <laughs> right. <laughs> or Amazon, for that matter. Say to the sort of uh, you know, the tax man, look, uh, yeah. surely we've built up a pretty good relationship you, uh, over the years. I've paid you yes. on the nail every time. Sure, I'm a week late this year, but I right. promise you it's, it's just an accident. Right. You know, and he should say, you know, you're right. I've looked back. You've paid me in time, every time for 20 years, I'm sure you'll get it to me this time. Let's not worry about it. Never do. Ain't gonna happen. And I think that's one of the problems with government is that it doesn't behave like uh, a trustworthy, interesting, uh, an organization that is prepared to build up trust capital with you. Um, it's, it's purely transactional every time. Now, I don't think, I mean, some you know, big private companies can be like that as well. Sure. But, but so quite a lot of private sector companies feel they do feel they they want to build a relationship with their customers that is one of trust fascinating 
So this is a bit of a shift, but one of the big themes in your book, uh, Rational Optimist, that I found fascinating is this no this idea that our work is more specialized, but our demand is more diversified and varied. And you cite, uh, and I, I actually went and read it, uh, the essay, I Pencil, by Leonard Reed. Can you describe that to our listeners? Because it's, it's a really interesting way of describing this concept. And I think once people hear this concept, they'll, they'll really understand some of what's gone on in terms of contributing to the progress in our world. Yeah. Yeah. I think that essay is one of the most important documents that every kid should read. It's very accessible. It's very short. Yeah. You know, I would, I would just love to make sure it's on every syllabus that everybody reads it. Cause I think it's the most insightful thing about the world that you can read. Uh. Um, so, uh, it's, it's written by a pencil. Uh, the pencil is trying to figure out how it came into existence uh, and it researches its origins and it finds that its wood came from a tree and its graphite lead uh, came from a graphite mine and and you know the paint came from somewhere else and the metal ferrule and the eraser and you know all that and it tracks down the origins of these things and it keeps tracing them further and further back so there's the guy cutting down the tree whose wood is going to be used to make the pencil and but hang on, he's drinking coffee and eating sandwiches and somebody else is making the coffee and uh, somebody else is growing it. And well, hang on, but he can't grow the coffee without fertilizer. So there's someone making fertilizer, you know, and, and he soon begins to realize that just to make one pencil, <laughs> millions and millions of human beings have collaborated. Right. They've all contributed tiny amounts of their work to make the pencil, and I, the way I put it, is to make the pencil for me. You know, it's my pencil. They were all working for me. Some lumberjack was kindly cutting down a tree so that there would be wood to put in the pencil that I'm going to use today to write a note on a bit of paper. And the amazing thing, of course, that, that, that the pencil then realizes at the end of the essay, perhaps I shouldn't be, give too much of a spoiler, <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the denouement, of course, is that the pencil then realizes that none of these people know how to make a pencil. There isn't a human being on the planet who knows how to make a pencil. The man who uh, cuts down the tree doesn't. Um, the man who who uh, you know ships the pencil from the pencil factory doesn't. The man who runs the pencil factory doesn't. They just know how to do their specialized little job. And yet we, between us, are capable of making a pencil. Now, if that's true for a pencil, imagine how much more true it is for a nuclear power station or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Right, right. <laughs> and so the the the... the the, the, the notion that we can command infinite complexity by combining our efforts um, uh, and that we don't have to understand even what we're doing, really. We just have to understand our small part in it, I think is a beautiful idea. Um, uh, and you combine that with the insight that I actually credit to Haim Ofek after I read his book, Second Nature. But when I contacted him, he said he got it from one of my books. So it's... <laughs> <laughs> well, there's example. another example, probably. Exactly. It's the same thing. And that's the idea that I think you, you touched on it, that the more and more specialized we get in what we produce, the more and more diversified we can get in what we consume. So you hear people lament the narrowness of jobs and work. You know, my work is so boring. I just do the same thing over and over again. Yeah, but you're, the, the rest of your life isn't. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you, you can right. watch movies and go to uh, and go to meals and so on. All of which is someone else's work, um, right? For you, it's amazing. And the other thing about iPencil, 
I interviewed a man named Richie Davidson, who's a neuroscientist, and he studies, he was influenced by the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama said, you know, you study all anxiety and depression, all these bad things that happen to the brain. How about you study when people have a good framework of and a good positive? So he changed his whole career. And one of the things he tells people to do if they really, because he believes in brain plasticity, which I think most people acknowledge is a thing now, you can actually change the way you think and the way your brain works. He challenges people. He said, for one week, pick one meal. And before you eat that meal, look at your plate and think about who raised, who, who grew that broccoli, who raised the chicken, who brought it to the store where you bought that chicken, who was the checkout person, you know, and what, what he was getting at was not so much, no one knows how to make a meal, but more be grateful for the number of people. So back to the eye pencil, the number of people who contributed to the making of that pencil should make the pencil feel great, <laughs> right? I mean, you have a gratitude about you that you wouldn't have if you don't think about that. Is that is that fair, you think? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I never cease to, to, to be amazed at the generosity of the people who sell me things. Now that right. might seem a bit strange because I'm paying, but uh, but but in some sense they've, you know, they are handing me this fantastically <laughs> useful thing that I need at that moment. All I've got to do is give them, uh, you know, a few pieces of green paper with <laughs> pictures of presidents on them. You know? <laughs> it's a great deal. It's amazing. Now, of course, I'm being a bit a bit ironic. No, there, no, but, you, but it's true. You get the point. Um, it, it really is, uh, uh, you know, fan the fantastic gratitude we should be showing to the people who ensure that, um, well, okay, I'm in a strange city at the moment. I just ate lunch a short mm -hmm. while ago. Yes. Um, I chose where to eat at the last minute. Um, in the end, I ended up in the hotel restaurant because I've been working and didn't want to time to go out. Um, I chose what to eat at the last minute. How come there was the right amount of food available in the right time in the right place? Who knew I was coming to that restaurant <laughs> at lunch? Uh, and this is a, a, an example from a guy called Frederick Bastiat, a French economist, who said, how does Paris get fed? I mean, who's in charge of making sure there's enough <laughs> bread, enough pasta, enough avocados, enough... He wouldn't have used the word avocados. No, probably in the, not in century, but you get yeah. the point. You know, it's quite extraordinary when you think about it. Um, uh, yeah, one of the ones, one of the ways I talk about it in the book, I think, is is Louis the Fourteenth. Um, you know, the son king. He had four hundred ninety three people to prepare his dinner every night, uh, so it, you know he's incredibly wealthy uh, and he could eat almost anything he wanted within reason. But actually, you've got four hundred ninety three people to prepare your dinner tonight. They're all working in different cafes and bistros across town. None of them knows who who's going to serve you, but. At the drop of a hat, you can go around and get a really decent meal. And as I say, you have mangoes and avocados in it, which wasn't an option for Louis XIV. And, and Louis XIV, we could get into a whole deep dive on the life expectancy that, you know, that the king, right, and his family and how many of those didn't live to adulthood. He, he did and, live a long time, Louis XIV. But yeah. He did, but, but not, not his whole family. And, you know, oh, exactly. and, and those grandfather and all that yeah. and those are the other things we take for granted i always use the example in our country of of calvin coolidge was president of the united states and his son died while he was in office he was 16 he had an infected blister he died three years before penicillin was invented you know so these things that we take for granted again if you if you study history <laughs> you'll realize things have never been better 
I'll emphasize again here that this iPencil essay we discussed really is thought-provoking. The writer is Leonard Reed, R-E-A-D, and it's easy to find online. I also found Matt's take on trust to be interesting. He's not at all advocating for blind trust in big institutions, but rather stresses the importance of maintaining trust in our one-on-one or smaller interpersonal relationships. Here, I think it may be the case that we are still doing pretty well. And the example of the sandwich shop is a good one. Now, to kick off our final segment, I wanted Matt to share his thoughts on another common topic on this podcast, climate change. Something else I wanted to ask you about is, you know, as you know, a huge source of existential dread these days is climate change and people's concerns about it. And back to you not being a Panglossian, you said somewhere, you said the pessimists are right. Actually, I think this was in Rational Optimist. The pessimists, pessimists are right when they say that if the world continues as it is, it will end in disaster for all humanity. If all transport depends on oil and oil runs out, then transport will cease. If agriculture continues to depend on irrigation and aquifers are depleted, then starvation will ensue. But you could say, but that's not going to happen. The world's not going to continue like that. Can you talk about your thoughts on how we address climate change and and why, yes, the pessimists are right, but you think the optimists will prevail? Mm-hmm. Well, um, it, it, it's sort of the point about extrapolation. If the world is getting warmer, then and if it continues forever, then of course one day it'll get too hot. Uh, but is that really likely to happen? Um, uh, 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 the world is warming and has been for 30, 40 years. And during that time, I've listened to endless predictions of how bad that's going to get. And uh, and on the whole, they are now being rowed back on. Most people are now saying that the uh, you know four degrees this century is unlikely, that the metre of sea level is un, uh, unlikely, etc. Uh, and that actually the rate of warming is lower than we were forecasting in the 1990s which is true and, and is a relief. Uh, so, you know, I personally think climate change is real and a threat, but nothing like as big a threat as some people say. And the idea, the idea that billions of people are going to starve in the next couple of decades, which I've heard people say now for 30 years, at a time when the amount of food available per head has been going up, not down, uh, and the amount of acreage needed to produce that food has been going down, not up, so it's getting easier and easier to feed the world, even though the population is increasing. And uh, you know, it makes me think that we are way too pessimistic in our view of climate change. We should look, at, look on it as a problem to be solved, not an existential threat to be panicked about. Um, uh, what we need to do is find lower carbon versions of uh, energy production and or ways of absorbing or trapping carbon. Um, Is that beyond the wit of human ingenuity over the next few decades? I really don't think it is. And what worries me is that actually a lot of the measures we're taking to prevent climate change are themselves doing significant harm. The environmental impact of renewable energy is, is really quite significant. They need a lot of raw materials, they take up a lot of space. And if you if you go to parts of Africa, um, uh, you find people relying on uh, firewood for light and heat, um, 
uh, and as a result, ingesting huge amounts of smoke and experiencing indoor air pollution and things like that. And you say, how come we haven't got gas to these people or uh, electricity to these people? And the answer is because um, uh, it's very it's very difficult to afford it. But also, increasingly, you find environmentalists and politicians from the West are saying you can't have gas, you can't have electricity um, if it comes from coal, um, because you've got to have renewables instead, and we can't afford them yet, and we can't get you solar, and it's not wouldn't work at night, and all that kind of thing. So actually, there's real harm being done to people's living standards by the the worry about climate change. So I think we're we're exaggerating the problem exaggerating the insolubility of the problem in particular um, uh, uh, and uh, that um, uh, there are many other environmental problems including you know invasive alien species that alter habitats the overfishing of the oceans etc which I think are being neglected because of the, the obsession with climate change so I just I just find it weird the way it's become this utterly all-encompassing, cause of doom and gloom and it reminds me a bit of the way people talked about the population explosion in the 1960s um, which was indeed a pretty alarming trend at the time but turned out to have already begun to get less bad Uh, the rate of population growth had started falling by the mid 1960s the absolute number added to the population every year uh, was falling by the mid 1980s and it looks like we're going to have a static global population well before the year 2100. Likewise, I think the rate of warming uh, as a result of um, uh, carbon dioxide emissions uh, is falling and will continue to fall. Oh, and by the way, I looked into the effect carbon dioxide is having on green vegetation in the planet. I don't think I mentioned this in the book because it it wasn't yet known, but satellite data has shown that um, we've been adding... um, Uh, we've added, in the last 30 years, we've added extra green vegetation to the planet on the scale of two United States uh, area. Um, That's because plants grow better with extra carbon dioxide in the air, particularly in in arid areas. So there's, there's good news as a result of carbon dioxide as well as bad, but even saying that gets you hung, drawn and quartered in certain... In certain circles, um, but I do think we've got to look at it rationally rather than look at it emotionally. And back to the uh, population growth, I I uh, read a book by and interviewed Charles Kenny, who wrote a book called Getting Better, and he he pushes back on on concerns about uh, increased population. And it, I'll tie it to your concept of ideas having sex. The more people, the more ideas. The more ideas. The more propagating ideas, and you've been very outspoken saying that you think that knowledge is genuinely limitless, that the growth of knowledge has. So whether it's climate change or pick pick your problem to solve, more people, more ideas, more knowledge. Is that fair? Yes, I think I'd probably part company with him, though, when uh, some people say, look, the more people we give birth to, the more innovation we'll experience. I suspect the difference between 8 billion and 9 billion people on the planet in terms of innovation is going to be infinitesimal. Right. Uh, in other words, I think we've, we've got plenty of people <laughs> yes. with, with the ideas yes. already. So in that sense, I don't think we need lots more babies to have the ideas. I, I think what counts is how well those 8 billion people are communicating with each other, not 
how many of them there are. Uh, right. As it were. Right. So since you've written the book and, and we should we should wrap up, are there other data points, ideas, thoughts? If you if you were going to write another chapter or another two chapters, are there other things that you feel like you've learned or things you might change in the book, add to uh, in the years since? <laughs> well, one of them is that somewhere at the back of the Rational Optimist, I say something like, look, there's bad things that are still going to happen. I mean, there's probably going to be pandemics, I say. Oh, boy. <laughs> so it was you. I did use that word. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> um, and I'd probably, uh, but, but you know, you may or may not know that I've written a book called Viral, co-written with Alina Chan about where this pandemic began. And we, we think it almost certainly did begin with a laboratory accident. So in that sense, it's a mad-made mistake, which we needn't have made. And that brings me to the other thing I'd probably say if I rewrote the book, and I'd be a little less optimistic about this. I think the, the things we do as civilizations to stifle innovation can be quite serious. Uh, and if you look at past uh, empires that went wrong, like the Chinese empire or the Ming Empire or the Ottoman Empire or, or whatever, you can see how uh, some kind of bureaucracy and superstition can shut down the innovation engine and result in the immiseration of people. Now, I don't think that's going to happen on a global scale. I think if, you know, if America stops being innovative, India might take over or something like that. But I'm a little more worried about that than I was 13 years ago when I published that book. I'm see, you know, my own continent of Europe has completely turned its back on an entire technology, biotechnology and agriculture. It's completely turned its back on another technology, shale gas. Um, uh, I, you know, I do think that uh, that that it's possible that we don't grasp the opportunities that lie before humanity during this century. You know, back to what you said about things could get dramatically better, but they still require people to take action to get there. And I just hope that we're not getting so anti-innovation, you know, oh, my God, AI, we've got to clamp down on it in case it does bad things, etc. I hope we're not getting so anti-innovation that we're going to stop that happening. Well, I am uh, I am with you on all of that. And, and uh Kevin Kelly was one of the reasons I, I love talking to him is he is he is such a technophile. I, I tease him on a few things, almost to a fault, I think. But he, um, you know, embraces all of this and says, you know, and and I'd love to your thoughts on this one too. He says, today's, yesterday's solutions caused today's problems, right? That's and today true. we'll come up with solutions for you, yeah, right? And so he talks about you know fossil fuels, okay. But they, we wouldn't have had an industrial revolution without exactly. fossil fuels. And so now, but that now has led to a problem that we now need to address with new innovation. And he said, AI, he said, we're, we are just getting started. There's going to be things better than we could ever imagine. And some things that we're really going to have to keep an eye on, but we got to keep going. And I think that's the spirit. Well, as usual, I agree with Kevin on all of that. <laughs> He's terrific. Well, so are you. And I, and I, I encourage everyone to read Kevin's book, and I ask if there's anyone out there who hasn't read The Rational Optimist, shame on them. Um, and I now I want to read your other books as well. Now that we've talked, and I and I I've known you've written these other ones, but um, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. You you truly are one of the big reasons I'm doing this work. So 
Um, it's just been a real pleasure. And I know you're busy and I appreciate you taking the time. Well, Bill, it's great to meet you and really enjoyed the conversation. And thank you for doing this. You got it. Thanks. Matt Ridley's thoughts on climate change will certainly challenge many of us. One can read the full gamut of opinion and data about just how serious and pressing the issue is, but it seems that Matt is taking more of a middle ground and cautioning us not to lose sight of other important challenges before us as we continue to pursue strategies to lessen the impact of climate change and rising global temperatures. I imagine this will stir up plenty of opinions with all of you listening, so please share your thoughts with us through our website and social media. And while you're at it, please leave a rating or review of this episode or Blue Sky in general. Reviews and ratings really help bring notice to the show and also help us think of ways to make it better. And if you like this sort of content, please check out the Optimism Institute on social media. Until next time, I'm the founder of the Optimism Institute and host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke, and I thank you for listening.